tell me about your place, somewhere breathtakingly beautiful or undistinguished and unremarkable. Either way, it's somewhere that gives you a unique feeling of well-being, contentment. What's yours, a grove of trees or a bench by the library? That's where the angels live, you know, in libraries. Maybe it's an old tavern in St. Augustine or somewhere down by the river. Greetings, I'm Jim McGinnis, and this is Stories We Can Tell. I am what Jim Harrison called a fairly well-behaved madman. My studio is my back porch, where there are frequently sounds of crickets, birds, barking dogs, and trains. Maybe some rain hitting the roof. Siren works its way in from time to time. But I kind of like it that way. I hope you do, too. As far as the podcast goes, place for thoughts and musings and passages of this old Floridian. What can you expect? At its heart, stories and reflections on history, literature, and life in America. I've been off the radar for a while. Sorry, Scotty. Summertime is heralded by a nasty head cold that I've been battling for over a week now. Back in January, I did a piece on sense of place, and today I wanted to take that in a slightly different direction. Harrison described it as spirit of place, the soul's best habitat. He spoke of how the mystery of place leaves its mark on our consciousness. We are wherever we've been, among other things. Patrick Smith, the author of the great Florida novel, A Land Remembered, talked often about place, and through his works helps teach us about gaining ours. The stories we tell, the maps and, and photos we see, the poems we recite, all serve as tools for helping us learn to appreciate a place, but a location won't give up its nature without hard usage. It takes more to anchor you to place. A place is not a place, said Wallace Stegner, until people have both experienced and shaped it as individuals, families, neighborhoods, and communities. It is made a place only by slow accrual, like a coral reef. It may matter that the man who wrote the consummate story of frontier Florida was Mississippi born and raised. This, of course, lends credence to Smith's claim that we can have more than one place. Me? Yeah, there's a cabin in the North Carolina mountains and a cobblestone walk in Savannah and an undistinguished beach halfway to Sebastian with a narrow access trail through palmettos and sand spurs and a neighborhood street off Melbourne Avenue lined with oaks and plain houses. There was a little place down on the water in Palm Bay that doesn't even exist anymore. Castaway Point, it was called. Owned by a Kentuckian named Gary, I believe. Great jukebox. Oh, and there's the Georgiana Methodist Church up on Tropical Trail. I've been known to sometimes drive up to hear an old friend preach, not as often as I would like. Of course, there are ballparks around South and Central Florida, and if I can find an unlocked gate, then Center Field will have a visitor. And then there's my boat, which I believe to be a movable spot, and then the old oak tree that stands above my grandson's grave. Today, though, I'd like to read you something I wrote about that spot in North Carolina. Hope you enjoy it.
North to Carolina. Dark and silent late last night. I think I might have heard the highway calling. James Taylor. Six o'clock came without even a hint of daylight. He sat down in his favorite window and stared out into the dark. The man thought of North Carolina. He could hear James Taylor singing Carolina in my mind, the song that he played ritually upon each departure. Like so many Floridians, flatlanders as the mountain people called them, he grew infatuated with the Blue Ridge. The Southern Appalachians offered Florida people more than just temporary relief from the humidity. It gave them a whole different perspective of things. Whether it be North Georgia, East Tennessee, or Western Carolina, the mountains became an idyllic destination for those driving up from the Sunshine State. The family found a place far from the tourist towns and villages. Their cabin was perched upon the side of a mountain in old tobacco country just west of Asheville. The world was closing in now, but the man could still find himself wandering up and down mountain paths reciting bits and pieces of Thoreau or Muir. It was a chilly morning here in Florida and he sipped his coffee and leafed through an old log book he kept of family trips to Carolina. He laughed out loud at the stories and his apparent obsession with quoting Robert Frost. He stopped to read entries made by the grandparents about seeing a turkey or grouse, admiring the blooming rhododendron, or picking wild roses. The memories were so thick he almost had to close the book. He remembered the bonfires. After dinner, he'd propose building a fire with Frosty and Verse, let's go up and scare ourselves, mix sparks with stars. His brother-in-law would roll his eyes and casually reply, whatever. They would make their way up the lookout with three dogs and four or five kids right on their heels. He read from his Carolina Journal, Sunday, March 11th, 1990. By getting this land, we're reaching back to try to rekindle some things for our children. The century has rolled over us like a steamroller. Hopefully we can preserve this piece of land and the root holds that go along with it. The man never seemed to tire of the view from the mountain, especially at night. Lights of Asheville shone, giving him a unique perspective. You could see things differently from a distance, things and people both. The old mountains let him have a whole new view of the world. John Muir may have said that. Mountain walks were like trips back in time for him. When the wind was running right, there were no signs of modernity, no sounds of trucks, airplanes, or tractors would remind him of his time. It was as if he went back for a few moments. It was a timelessness he could find only on his boat miles offshore. For nearly 40 years, the family had made their way up to these mountains. He loved to revisit the moments with lost loved ones, especially his mother-in-law. He missed sitting with her at the kitchen table, sipping coffee, making small talk. They would open up the blinds and watch the morning stream in and burn off the mountain mist while everyone else slept in. After she died, the Floridian made it a point to greet the mountain sunrise each morning he was there sitting at the table, waiting. Now home, he read another entry from the book. Tuesday, December 30th, 2008. Cool, clear morning. The sunrise was a sight to behold. First, the silhouette of mountains on the horizon, 
barely visible, then a growing orange glow outlining the far range against the blue sky. The orange sky fades to a pale yellow where it meets the blue. After a while, the dark green of the near valley becomes visible, but there's still no sun, just an orange glow over the far range. Where earlier there was an outline against the whole eastern sky, the glow now becomes more concentrated beyond two prominent peaks. Colors are now pastel above the horizon. Soon the sun, the sun shows itself, not subtly, but brilliantly. There is nothing subtle about this. Bright, beautiful, no colors now, just white light. The man looked up and saw that it was daylight here in Florida. Time to feed the dogs. The female nudged him as a gentle reminder. He closed the Carolina book and got up and out of the chair. He thought again of so many trips to the mountains, of stops in Savannah and arrivals in Asheville and everything in between. Signs that might be omens say I'm going, I'm going, I'm gone to Carolina in my mind. Well, it's starting to rain out here on the porch. Hope you liked it. This is Jim McGinnis, Fair Winds.